This is a Bible study of the Gospel according to St. John, chapters 1 to 6. The following sources were consulted in preparation. Jesus the Bridegroom by Brent Petrie. The Gospel of John, NIV Application Commentary by Gary Berg. The Gospel of John by Francis Martin. The Gospel of John, Volume 1 by William Barclay. The Gospel of John, a verse-by-verse exposition by F. F. Bruce. And finally, The Gospel According to John by D. A. Carson. Before looking at the text, we should address three questions. First, who is the author? Second, when the Gospel was written? And third, for what purpose? With respect to the first question, nowhere in the Gospel of John does the author specifically identify himself by name. However, clues are given in the text itself. The most important clue is found in the concluding chapter 21, starting at verse 20. Quote, Peter turned and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved, who had lain close to his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? This designation, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is identified as the author four verses later, in chapter 21, verse 24. Quote, This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. End of quote. Four other times in the Gospel, this designation occurs. First, at the Last Supper, in chapter 13, verse 23, quote, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was lying close to the breast of Jesus. Then, at the cross, in chapter 19, verse 26, quote, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then, at the tomb, in chapter 20, verse 2, quote, Mary Magdalene ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And finally, as Jesus appears to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias in chapter 21, verse 7, quote, The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Given this evidence, one can conclude that this beloved disciple must be one of the twelve, since he was at the Last Supper with Jesus, and that he must be part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. He cannot be Peter because, in chapter 21, verse 20, Peter looks back and sees the one whom Jesus loved, and cannot be James, since James suffered martyrdom too early to be the author of the Gospel. Aside from the aforesaid internal evidence from the Gospel itself, we also have external evidence from the Patristic Fathers. The primary witness is St. Irenaeus who was born in 130 A.D., and in 177 A.D. became Bishop of Lyon. In his work against heresies, Irenaeus writes, quote, John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned back on his breast, published the gospel while he was a resident at Ephesus in Asia, end of quote. St. Irenaeus, in this regard, relied on the earlier testimony of St. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. Bishop Polycarp lived between 
69 AD and 155 AD, and therefore was alive at the time that the Gospel of John was composed. St. Irenaeus writes that when he was much younger, he knew a Polycarp, who claimed to have been a disciple of St. John. In his writing to a friend called Florinus, St. Irenaeus says the following, quote, I remember the events of those days more clearly than those which have taken place recent. For what we learn as boys grows up with our lives and becomes united to them. So I can describe for you the very place where the blessed Polycarp sat and discoursed, how he came in and went out, his manner of life, and his bodily appearance, the discourses which he used to deliver to the people, and how he would tell of his converse with John and with the others who had seen the Lord, how he remembered their words and what things he had heard from them about the Lord, including his mighty works and teaching. St. Irenaeus, contemporary, Clement of Alexandria, also writes, quote, John, last of all, conscious that the bodily facts had been set forth in those Gospels, was urged on by his disciples, and divinely moved by the Spirit, composed a spiritual, that is, allegorical, gospel. End of quote. Clement was the disciple of elders who knew the apostles. There is also the Meritorian Canon, the oldest known list of most of the Gospels of the New Testament, dated to around 180 A.D., that says that St. John wrote the fourth Gospel. Finally, every copy of the fourth Gospel, without exception, has the title, Gospel According to John. This goes back to the earliest Greek manuscripts. There are no anonymous copies, not just of the fourth Gospel, but of the synoptics as well. As regards the date of composition, most scholars generally agree that the fourth Gospel was written between 90 and 100 A.D., although some 19th century scholars claim that the Gospel of John was written after 150 A.D., this theory has been debunked by a recent discovery of a fragment containing portions of John chapter 18, dated to around 125 A.D. Since this discovery was made in Egypt, it stands to reason that the Gospel must have been written well before 125 to allow time for it to be copied and to be circulated all the way to Egypt. A minority of scholars argue that the date for the composition of this gospel could be before 70 AD, since John makes no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem. For example, the almost passing reference in John chapter 5, verse 2, that there is, present tense, a pool near the sheep gate in Jerusalem, would argue for an earlier date, since the pool was not in existence after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, most scholars hold for a later dating of the Gospel of John in the years between 90 and 100 AD. As for the purpose of the Gospel, St. John makes that clear in chapter 20, verse 31, quote, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. End of quote. Before leaving these introductory remarks, 
there is one objection to John's authorship that many still hold today. This gospel, they argue, so rich in theology that it is represented by the eagle that soars well above the other gospels could not possibly be written by a mere fisherman. However, one must remember that St. John was by this time an old man and had many decades to reflect, meditate, and pray over what he had witnessed. As well, an important and monumental event had occurred which changed all the disciples, whether educated or not, and that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Divine enlightenment by God, plus many decades of reflection, could account for the fact that St. John, in an effort to supplement the Synoptic Gospels, had the opportunity and time to craft such an elegant theology of Jesus Christ. As well, it is possible that St. John had a scribe to whom he dictated the Gospel, a scribe who was much more elegant in the Greek language. We now begin looking at the prologue of chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. The first point to emphasize is that the prologue acts as an overture to many of the main themes that will be further developed in subsequent chapters. This is evident in the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The opening three words bring us back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, and the first creation, when God spoke his word, and the cosmos came to be out of nothing. St. John wishes the reader to immediately place themselves in this theme of creation, as the author will be at pains throughout his gospel to maintain that Jesus is beginning a new creation. This is why chapter 1 sets forth the first week of Jesus' ministry as a succession of days in parallel to the first week of the old creation, culminating on the seventh day with his first miracle at the wedding feast at Cana, changing water into wine. Furthermore, this new creation will be crafted in terms of a new exodus, with Jesus being the new Moses who leads humanity not out of a physical slavery to a foreign power, but out of tyranny to sin, and not to a promised land of Canaan, but to the eternal life of heaven. In Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration of Jesus is accompanied by Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. They speak to Jesus about his exodus, that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In fact, the prophets of the Old Testament, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, look forward to the future age of salvation as a new exodus. Whereas the first exodus began in Egypt and ended in Jerusalem with the building of the temple, Jesus will begin his new exodus at Jerusalem with its destination, the new heavens and the new earth of eternal life. Moreover, since the first exodus required a Passover as its initiative, the new Exodus will require a new Passover, which St. John builds up to beginning in chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him and proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Mention of the Lamb of God in chapter 1 verse 29 
brings the reader back to Exodus chapter 12 and the Paschal lamb that was sacrificed, whose blood was put on the doorpost of the Israelites' homes, and whose flesh had to be eaten that night. This theme of a new beginning is also developed by our author in terms of a new birth in chapter 3, when Jesus tries to explain to the Pharisee Nicodemus, a man of the Old Testament law, that one must be born again through faith and baptism. Indeed, this new birth will be necessary to prepare one's heart to accept the new covenant in Christ in the receiving of his blood at the sacrament of the Eucharist. All this and more is implicit in the opening three words, in the beginning. Other books of the New Testament will buttress these themes. For example, the book of Revelation, also authored by St. John, states in chapter 21, verse 5, quote, And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. In Luke chapter 9, this new birth is anticipated by the Old Testament in several ways. For example, King David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband Uriah to cover up the sin, repents in the heartfelt prayer of Psalm 51, verse 12, quote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a steadfast spirit. The word create is the same word used in Genesis chapter 1, when God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, forgiveness of serious sin is like a new birth. In Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 21, God speaking through the prophets states, quote, I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you, taking from your bodies your stony hearts and giving you natural hearts. Essential to this new birth and new exodus is our journey with Christ, not only out of slavery to sin, but in a relationship of intimacy and mutual indwelling. We already get a sense of this intimacy as verse 1 uses the preposition pros, P-R-O-S, translated with, as in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Here, pros means more than just a static non-movement, but rather a sense of motion or inclination toward intimacy of a dynamic relationship between the Word and God. This becomes clear in the last verse of the prologue, which forms an inclusio with verse 1, and states that no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is into the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Thus the Word was not only with God, but in the bosom of the Father, an unbelievable intimacy set out in the prologue as a preparation for later chapters that will further develop the relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ, a relationship into which we are invited. Another theme that St. John introduces in verse 1 is the divinity of Christ. He accomplishes this by tracing the origin of the Word back to the inner life of God from all eternity. Thus, whereas Matthew's Gospel has Jesus' genealogy going back to Abraham and Luke's going back to Adam, 
St. John begins his prologue in eternity past with the word already existing. This theme of the eternal pre-existence of Jesus is also set out in other books of the New Testament, including Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Quote, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. End of quote. Also, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. End of quote. See also Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, and Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Thus the claim by the heretical priest Arius, who said that there was once when he was not, referring to Jesus, is clearly refuted by verse 1 of John's prologue. Modern-day Arians, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, in their New World translation of the Gospel of John, mistranslate verse 1 by attempting to insert a God to deny co-equality with God. They argue that since God has no article in the original language, the intention of the author in verse 1 is to highlight the quality of divinity rather than identify the word as God. But as scholars point out, John could easily have used the Greek adjective theos, which specifically means divine, if that was his objective. When one combines verse 1 with the inclusio of John chapter 20 verse 28, where Thomas, referring to Jesus, says, My Lord and my God, there can be no doubt. John is not intending to reduce Logos to a God. This becomes foundational for later theological development, climaxing in the Nicene Creed, first adopted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and amended in 381 at the First Council of Constantinople. Quote, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. A further theme in this important opening verse derives from the Greek term logos, L-O-G-O-S, translated word. St. John deliberately uses this term in an attempt to bring together ancient Greek philosophy and biblical revelation. Pre-Socratic Greek philosophers wanted to know what was the underlying force or unifying principle which held the ever-changing universe together. For Halley's, this was water. For Heraclitus, fire. And for Pythagoras, a mathematical basis in numbers. Other Greek philosophers proposed different first principles, such as thought or speech, termed logos, as a kind of eternal ordering principle in the cosmos. 
Stoic philosophers such as Zeno in 300 BC held that Logos was a divine, generative, and rational principle by which all things exist, including the human soul. This, for the Stoics, was their understanding of an impersonal pantheistic God that rationally directs all things. In the biblical tradition of the Old Testament, the Word is God's powerful activity in creation, redemption, and revelation. We see this in the book of Genesis and the repeated phrase, God said, and it came to be. And in Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of God the heavens were made. In Isaiah chapter 55, starting at verse 10, we have this remarkable statement. For just as from the heavens the rain and snow come down and do not return until they have watered the earth, making it fertile and fruitful, giving seed to him who sows and bread to him who eats, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but do my will, achieving the end for which I sent it. Finally, in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 23, and Sirach chapter 24, verse 9, the word is also depicted as wisdom of God, being the agent of creation, a craftsman who was at God's side and was his delight. In the prophetic books of the Old Testament, this word, which is wisdom, inspires and speaks through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, to name a few, so that Israel may be instructed in the ways of the Lord. St. John, knowing these traditions, both philosophical and biblical, chooses the term logos to make the powerful statement that everything that is rational and wise and that underlies all existence is not an abstract principle or thought but a divine person who, as the prologue goes on to say, took on our flesh and dwelt amongst us, full of grace and truth. This word, as previously stated, is turned toward God in an intimate relationship to which we are invited. Indeed, verse 1 introduces us to a beginning understanding of the Trinity, which will be further developed in chapter 5 where the word who is Jesus Christ calls God his Father, thus claiming for himself divine sonship in an equality of nature, yet subordination of function. One last point regarding John's use of Logos. Since the divine word embraces both the philosophical and biblical traditions of rational thought and speech that create, order, and sustain the universe, including us, our participation in that word, being created in God's image and likeness, challenges us to take up truth and avoid all falsehood in every aspect of our lives. Verse 2 and 3 of the prologue state, quote, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was. In effect, John expresses both in a positive and negative sense that Logos was with God in the beginning as God's creative agent or instrument. This again is parallel to Genesis chapter 1, where God spoke and it came to be. 
We find additional New Testament references to this theme in, for example, Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, quote, For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, quote, But in these last days he has spoken to us by a Son, whom he has appointed as heir of all things, through whom also he created the ages. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, quote, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. St. John and the other New Testament authors emphasize this point, because in the early church a dangerous heresy called Gnosticism held that material existence was so flawed and evil that God, who is pure spirit, also known as the monad or the one, could not in any way be associated with creation. To compensate, a series of emanations poured out from God, each one further distant from, and therefore increasingly ignorant of, and even hostile to God. Further down the chain of emanations was the evil God of the Old Testament, who formed pre-existing matter into the cosmos. St. John, in the prologue, and other New Testament writers, emphasized that the Word was one being with God, intimately involved in creation of the cosmos, not shaping pre-existing evil matter, but out of nothing. Moreover, St. John, in verse 14 of the prologue, emphasizes that the Word actually took on flesh to begin a new creation, the first creation marred by the fall, now to be redeemed in Christ. Verse 4 of the prologue states, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here we see two further themes developed. The Word, as life, is augmented in John chapter 5, verse 25, where Jesus, receiving from the Father self-existent life, states, quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. End of quote. As well, Jesus will state in John chapter 10, verse 10, quote, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. End of quote. And in John chapter 14, in response to Thomas' inquiry, quote, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. What does John mean by life? in verse 4 of the prologue, and Jesus in John chapter 5, chapter 10, and chapter 14. Scholars point out that in the Greek language there are three different words for life, bios, suke, and zoe. 
with slightly different meanings. Bios, from which we get the word biology, means physical life or life of the body. An example is 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, quote, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the Word. End of quote. The word suke, from which the English word psychology or psyche derives, has the meaning of soul, that is, the vital force which animates the body. An example is Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, quote, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The word zoe is associated with the absolute fullness of life which belongs to God, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, in which God wishes to give us eternally. An example here would include John chapter 10, verse 10, quote, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That Jesus is the light of men relates to the two great gifts God lavishes on humanity. First, the natural illumination of our intellects, our ability to reason based on our being created in God's image and likeness, and thus the natural law, planted deep in our hearts, which as St. Paul maintains in Romans chapter 1, means we are without excuse. Light also refers to the illumination which comes from spiritual renewal made possible in Christ by being born again by water and the Spirit. All of these gifts, from a new exodus to a new spiritual birth to an unheard of intimacy with God, ultimately come face to face, however, with the possibility of rejection that is suddenly introduced in verse 5 of the prologue. Quote, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. This is the theme of the two ways expressed as the opposition between flesh and spirit, truth and falsehood, heaven and earth, life and death that pervades the scriptures. A good example is Psalm 1, which begins the prayer book of the Bible. Quote, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Not so are the ungodly. They are like chaff driven by the wind. Therefore, the wicked will not survive judgment, nor will sinners in the assembly of the just. The Lord watches over the way of the just, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. End of quote. In the Gospel of John, the contrast between light and darkness is illustrated by the encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus, who comes to him at night and makes progress toward the light versus Judas Iscariot, who goes from the light, being one of the chosen twelve apostles, into the darkness. For St. John, we are all faced with this choice 
whether to journey with Christ in a new birth, a new exodus, and an intimate relationship that goes from glory to glory, or to turn towards sin and the darkness that follows. In verse 6, another major theme is introduced through John the Baptist, and that is the theme of testimony. Quote, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. End of quote. St. John, who authored the fourth gospel, sets the entire narrative in the context of a court scene, which will culminate at a trial before the high priest and Pontius Pilate. In this trial, witnesses line up for the prosecution, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and for the defense, those who witness for Christ. This theme is greatly expanded in chapter 5, where Jesus lists five witnesses, including John the Baptist, the miracles or signs, God the Father, the scriptures, and Moses. The implication is that we are invited to become witnesses as well, because the trial still continues in each and every generation. The word martyr comes originally from the ancient Greek legal term for witness, someone who gives testimony or evidence in a court of law. That John the Baptist became a witness in laying down his life at the hands of Herod will only be the beginning of the many martyrs of the early church and the church today who give their lives in witness for Christ. Verse 9 of the prologue states, The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. Here, another major theme is introduced, that is, the world. Although the term can mean simply the ordered universe created by God that is called good, the more dominant meaning in John's Gospel is the world of fallen humanity alienated from God by sin, both original and actual. In verse 10, John states that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not, which will be later developed by St. Paul in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely, his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, because they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. End of quote. As chapter 1 of Romans deals with the Gentiles, chapter 2 includes Israel, who although were enlightened by the Torah, committed the same sins as the Gentiles. In verse 10 of the prologue, when St. John states, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not, the term knew bears the deeper biblical meaning of intimate relationship, exemplified by Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, 
Quote, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. Verse 11 of the prologue states, quote, He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. Here again is a reference to God's special revelation made to Israel, both through the Torah and now in the person of Christ that is rejected. For example, Jeremiah chapter 25 states, quote, from the day that your father left the land of Egypt, even to this day, I have sent you untiringly, all my servants, the prophets. Yet they have not obeyed me, nor paid heed. They have stiffened their necks, and done worse than their fathers. Verse 11 of the prologue reminds us that God initiates salvation. Quote, he came to his own people, and his own people received him not. Thus we are not forced to climb our way to an obscure and hidden God. Rather, God through his divine condescension looks for us if we would only open our hearts and receive him. Fortunately, verses 12 and 13 of the prologue are the divine invitation and set forth the benefits for those who accept. Quote, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The term receive means more than just passively acquiesce, but rather eagerly welcomes into the interior of one's core, so as to be formed to and shaped by God. The letter to the Hebrews will powerfully describe this efficacy of God's word in chapter 4, verse 12. Quote, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The phrase, believed in his name, in the prologue, verse 12, is repeated in chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 3, verse 18, and thus introduces a new theme. Names in biblical language refer more to the nature or character of a person than just merely a label or badge of identity. For example, when God changes the name of Simon to Peter, meaning rock, it was because his role after his profession of faith in Matthew chapter 16, is to be the rock on which Christ will build his church. In the Old Testament, Abram's name was changed to Abraham, because, as God said, quote, I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Genesis chapter 17, verse 5. When God changed the name of Jacob to Israel in Genesis chapter 17, he said, Quote, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, the angel instructs Joseph to name the child Jesus, quote, for he shall save his people from their sins. Since name stands for essence as applied to Jesus, this means Savior. That is why St. Paul states in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, quote, Whatever you do in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In verse 13 of John's prologue, the theme of rebirth is introduced, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This statement prepares for the further dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3. Here is the unimaginable gift of becoming children of God, entering into a covenant relationship with God who created the universe. Unfortunately, the Jewish leaders thought that by means of physical descent, they were chosen and therefore in God's friendship and protection. In John chapter 8, when Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles and the Pharisees are opposing him and saying, Abraham is our father, Jesus replies in verse 42, quote, If God were your father, you would love me, for I preceded and came forth from God. But you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. In verse 14 of the prologue, the good news of verses 12 and 13, invitation becomes tangible in Christ. Quote, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt amongst us in the Greek means tabernacled or pitched his tent, a reference both to the dwelling place of God on earth, see Exodus chapter 25 verse 8, and wisdom of the Torah, See Sirach chapter 24, verse 8. The tabernacle where God spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend, now has become flesh to speak with us and invite us to partake of his divine nature, to enter into a relationship of intimacy unthinkable in the Old Testament. It is interesting that John chose the word tabernacle in reference to Christ because the Feast of Tabernacles was being celebrated as one of the three pilgrim festivals that Jewish males were to observe each year by going to the temple in Jerusalem. It commemorated Israel's escape from Egypt and the 40-year journey in the wilderness toward the Promised Land. During this week-long festival, the people built temporary shelters made from palm branches in remembrance of their ancestors being delivered, protected, and cared for by God. The feast also was a thanksgiving celebration for the completion of the fall harvest. In John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus attends this feast and makes two startling statements. As the priest drew water from the pool of Siloam, carried it in procession into the temple, and poured it out as an offering next to the altar of sacrifice, Jesus proclaims in a loud voice on the last day of the feast, quote, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Here Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit that will be poured out upon the world and to the therapeutic properties symbolized by the pool of Siloam, both of which 
come to Christ for the healing and redemption of the world. Continuing the feast in chapter 8, verse 12, As giant candelabras burned in the sanctuary and flaming torches processed through the temple, Jesus proclaimed again in a loud voice, quote, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not be in darkness, but will have the light of life. Both of these statements pick up John's use of the word tabernacled in the prologue, verse 14, to describe how the word who has taken on our flesh wishes to dwell amongst us and be received. In that sense, God is neither hidden nor some abstract concept that we must try to decipher, but rather Emmanuel, God with us, who can be looked upon, touched, and heard, as St. John will further elaborate in his prologue of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, quote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What the author of Ecclesiastes lamented in the fallen, unregenerate humanity, that mortal life is vanity of vanities without direction, in a repeating and determined cycle of birth, death, war, peace, laughter, mourning, loving, and hating, that makes existence toilsome and meaningless, now, in the fullness of time, is infused with God's eternal life-giving presence. This is the unimaginable divine mercy of God, who sent his Son while we were yet sinners in our fallen state. St. Gregory of Nyssa states it this way, quote, Our nature demanded to be healed, fallen to be raised up, dead to rise up. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Clothed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captive, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are all these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit us, since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy state? End of quote. Verse 16 of the prologue states, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. A reference to the grace of the Old Testament received on Mount Sinai in the law, and now far more exceeding the grace of the New Testament in Christ Jesus, by which we become partakers of the divine nature and children of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. As St. Irenaeus in his work against heresies states, quote, but this is why the Word became man, and the Son of God become the Son of Man, so that man, by entering into communion with the Word, and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a Son of God. 
St. Athanasius put it bluntly, quote, For the Son of God became man, so that we might become God. The prologue of John chapter 1 concludes in verse 18, quote, For no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. End of quote. That which was sought so ardently in the Old Testament by the Israelites, that is, to see the face of God and to have God's radiance shine upon them, has now come true. The face of the Father can be seen in Christ, who is the perfect image of the perfect invisible God. The question for us, the reader, is whether we will receive him into the depths of our heart and allow him to utterly transform our life so that we might become witnesses, coming more and more from darkness into the light and glory of God. The rest of chapter 1, which we will look at next time, explores the theme of testimony from John the Baptist to the first disciples called by Christ to come and see.